0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you need an outline for this morning's service, please raise your hand. Troy is coming around this morning and he will be happy to get you an outline. It also has this evening on it so that perhaps you can follow along a little bit easier, and if nothing else, have an opportunity to write some notes on what you're hearing this morning. We are finally back in 1 Corinthians. It has been a month now since we have been in 1 Corinthians. I took the entire month of November and spent time speaking about Thanksgiving and focusing upon Thanksgiving in our morning service. We are back in 1 Corinthians, and if you recall, we kind of ended on a bit of a... Uh, a tough note last time. It was a hard message on, on fornication, as we preached from one Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five. And this man in the church who had taken his mother or his father's wife, and the terrible sin, the terrible fornication that was among these believers in the church of Corinth. And instead of mourning and lamenting this sin, Paul says, you are rather puffed up." You are, you are proud and you refuse to mourn and you refuse to lament this, this believer's sin and you refuse to do what is necessary. Well, this morning we're going to talk about that which is necessary. The title of the sermon is The Necessity of Separation. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, perhaps you've been washing dishes and I wash dishes at home. We don't have a dishwasher at home so we, we do a lot of dishwashing uh, the manual way, and uh, you've, you've had that sink and it's been full of water and you've been washing dishes for a while and that water gets really nasty. It gets scummy. You can't even see your hands when you stick them in there and you, you just sit there and say this can't be good for, for washing dishes. At some point you need to change the water out, right? Well, imagine with me, the sink is half full of dirty water and someone comes up and says, well, I'll tell you what, that water's too dirty so let's just do this. I've got a bucket here of clean water I'm going to pour it into that dirty water and you should be just fine. Well, there's a problem there, right? When you pour clean water into dirty water, you might dilute the dirty water, but you're not cleaning the water. It's still dirty water. Mixing the clean with the dirty is not going to make the dirty clean. It's going to make the clean dirty. Instead of having half a sink of really dirty water, now you've got a full sink of Maybe a little bit less, but still dirty water. It's still dirty water. Have you ever done an experiment, maybe for science class or um, if you've been cooking or whatever the case may be, and you've taken a, a cup of oil and you've poured water onto that oil? And what happens when you mix water and oil? Do they mix? They don't mix. You'll have water, and you'll have oil, but you're not going to mix them. They're together, but they're distinct. They are in the same cup, in the same bowl, in the same whatever it might be, but they there's a clear distinction between the oil and the water. This morning, we're going to talk about the necessity of separation. It's something that you may not hear about too often, but is very important both to us as individuals as well as to the local church. And we're going to do so from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just three verses this morning that I'm going to be focusing on. Verses 6 through 8. We're going to see two lessons regarding the nature of sin in the lives of believers and the necessity of separation. Please look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we'll begin in verse 1 for context. Our text will be verses 6 through 8 this morning. It is... "...reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much uh, as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I, verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Two lessons regarding the nature of sin in the lives of believers this morning. And as we do so, we will apply this, these lessons in various ways. We will apply this lesson to our individual lives. But we will also apply this lesson to our local church and to the broader church context at large. And we're going to do so in order that we we may understand the necessity of separation on each level of our lives. The first lesson this morning found in verse 6, sin in the church is infectious, not isolated. Sin in the church is infectious, not isolated. He says, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? What is leaven? As we think of this idea of leaven, it's a a term that uh, the bakers among us might find somewhat familiar, leaven is a process of fermentation where chemicals are breaking down and the byproduct of this breakdown causes a softening and enlarging by means of baking holes into bread. When you add leaven to bread, what it does is it expands... And as that leaven is breaking down, it's creating little pockets, air pockets, little holes in the bread. It's expanding the bread, the same amount of dough, but it's making it larger and it's adding holes, air holes, which is what allows it to be larger, fluffier, those sorts of things. Now in the scriptures, when the scriptures speak of leaven, it is almost always used as a picture of sin or corruption. Depending upon your interpretation of Matthew 13, you might say that it is always used as a picture of sin. However, Matthew 13, in the, those parables of the kingdom, it would appear that leaven is used in a positive light to speak of the influence of God's church in society. We won't get into that necessarily today, but uh, leaven, outside of that instance, is spoken of entirely and without question of sin or corruption Or taint. Sin finds its way into one's life, just like leaven is in that bread, and it taints that life. It changes that life. It leaves that life in a different state than it would have otherwise been in. The sin, or the leaven, in one's life. In the Old Testament, Hebrews were commanded in numerous feasts and offerings to eat unleavened bread exclusively this was intended to be a sign it was intended to be a picture to the nation of Israel to the Hebrew nation of purity before God putting away anything be it physical or be it spiritual which corrupts which erodes which taints they were to take anything that had a concept of fermentation or corruption and they were to put it out of the home they were to put the leaven out of the home there couldn't be any leaven found anywhere in the home. And it was intended to be a picture of a purity as they went before God. Now, this analogy carried over quite regularly into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus warned the disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees. Do you recall that? He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Luke chapter 12 gives us a little more of an understanding of what that was, this leaven of the Pharisees. Luke chapter 12 verse 1 says, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And so Jesus Christ said that hypocrisy was like leaven. It would get into your life, it would permeate your life, and it would change your life from what it is to something else. Leaven of hypocrisy. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see Paul use leaven to represent carnality, wickedness, worldliness in a Christian's life. That a Christian is a new creation, a new creature, and yet as sin gets into his life, it doesn't just hit a pocket of his life. We often talk about that, that back closet of sin in our lives, right? You clean up your whole life, but you've just put all your sins in the closet so that everyone sees you not as what you are, but you know, if, if they were to open that closet, they'd see all your sins, but really sin doesn't work that way. You can hide sin through hypocrisy, but sin permeates your life. It's leaven. You can't just say, I want to rise, I've got a bunch of biscuits here, but I only want these three to rise. So I'm just going to put enough leaven in the dough for just three to rise. It doesn't work that way, does it? Leaven permeates the the loaf and it it causes the entire loaf to rise, the entire recipe to rise. That's how it's used here in 1 Corinthians 5. We see it used one other time in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 5 verse 9. Paul says almost verbatim the exact, uh, well, he does say verbatim, the the words that he uses here in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. In Galatians 5 9 he says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And it's interesting. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 9, as Paul says this, he's speaking of legalism. He's speaking of that false gospel whereby you are trusting that which you can do to earn yourself favor with God. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of leaven as carnality through worldliness. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, he speaks of leaven as carnality through legalism. Two ends of the spectrum. Both are called leaven. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul preaches against those who would seek to impose a works-based religion to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit. I can do it all. If I have my checklist, then I'm going to be right with God. Paul says that's a false gospel. That's leaven. That's wrong. It's carnality. But then he goes to the other end of the spectrum. And those people who would seek to take advantage of grace And would say, I can do whatever I want because I have the Holy Spirit indwelling and I am under grace. Therefore, I can sin because God will forgive me of my sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 tells us what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so, Paul calls the legalism leaven, but he also calls that free grace idea leaven. The idea that we can do whatever we want because we're under grace. You know, you'll find throughout the Scriptures that God is a God of balance. God doesn't want us over here denying any ability of the Spirit to work in our lives, living out a checklist Christianity that says, I don't need God to be, uh, to be right with God. I can earn my way into favor with God through doing things. And God doesn't want us on the other end of the spectrum where He says, I'm just going to let the Spirit make up for all my deficiencies and I'm not even going to try to do what's right because because the Holy Spirit's in me and I'm just going to be led by Him into whatever I feel like is right. And God says they're both leaven. And He's in the middle. A proper relationship with God is not one where I, in my own effort, do a bunch of things to find favor with God to find peace and prosperity. On the contrary, a proper proper relationship with God is not one where I live a life of sin and carnality relying upon God's grace to cover me. I recognize God's grace in my life that is sufficient to cover my sins, that if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. But I also recognize that because I am a believer, because of what God has done for me, I ought to serve Him with my life. And I ought to place into my life those boundaries and those expectations whereby I am conforming myself to the expectations of God. That is His design. As we return to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, what we're seeing here is a warning specifically against this man, this fornicator in the church who is openly sinning. He is openly sinning he is in an improper uh, sexual relationship with his father's wife, probably his stepmother, as we talked about it five weeks ago. He is in this improper relationship with her. And the warning is that this man's sin cannot and will not remain isolated. Sin is an infection. It's an infection in individuals and it's an infection in the church. When sin is present in the church, it will spread, it will taint, and eventually, it will infect the entire body. Perhaps there were some in this church of Corinth that said something to this effect. Maybe they said, Paul, who am I to judge this man's sin? After all, we're all sinners. Who am I to judge this man? He's fornicating with his father's wife. I'm a sinner too. Let the man that is without sin cast the first stone, right? Or maybe they said, you know, I don't agree with his lifestyle. I don't think he's doing right, but that's between him and God. So I'm just going to let him be between, you know, just be between him and God. And as they perhaps said these things, they thought that they could let this man's sin continue that this man could remain in the church and that somehow the church would not be affected. But you know, it doesn't work that way. It never works that way. Paul says, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. You know, we're a small church. And... By God's grace, we've been blessed with a good number of children. Now, the Grismores aren't here this morning. That reduces our child population pretty dramatically. And we don't have the younger Schmidt's here this morning, and that redu- reduces it a bit more. But we still have a good number of children, and, and particularly um, when you think of small children, coming into this time of year. Today is December 1st. Getting the sniffles. And you see kids with their runny noses, and they're sneezing, and they're coughing, and they're running around the church. And this is what goes through your mind, right? You see those little kids and you see them running around and you see them touching doorknobs and you say, well, you know what? They're sick. I don't like that they're sick, but that's, that's their problem. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to go on with my day as I would expect to go on. They're sick and they can just be sick. Well, that's not how it works, is it? You, you see that kid and you see that he's going up and touching doorknobs and light switches, and you say, I'm not going to touch anything today. And if you do have to touch something, what are you going to do? You're going to immediately go down and wash your hands. Why? Because when somebody is sick, it doesn't remain isolated, does it? Viral infections do not stay isolated. They spread. And when you see someone that is sick, if my daughter woke up this morning and she was coughing like crazy and her nose was running and she had a fever. I would not tell my wife, we're just going to bring her anyway this morning. Not just for her sake, but I wouldn't want to get all of you sick. So what would I do? I would separate my daughter, my daughters, because if one gets sick, the other gets sick. I would separate them from the rest of the group so that I don't infect the rest of the group. How foolish would it be for me to think that I could come or my children could come to this church, could interact with everybody in this church, and we could leave this church and that illness only affect me. How foolish is that? But you know we do that with sin. My sin is only affecting me. So don't judge me. Don't tell me it's wrong. Or I'm not going to tell him his sin is wrong because that's between him and God. But you know, sin is infectious. It's not isolated. Father, if you have sin in your life, don't think that it's just not going to touch your family. Wife, if you have sin in your life, don't think it's not going to touch your marriage. Pastor, if you have sin in your life, don't think it's not going to touch your church. Church, if you have sin in your life, don't think it's not going to touch everyone else. So Paul says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And notice what he says is the solution. First we saw that sin in the church is an infection. It's not isolated. But his solution is found in verses 7 and 8. Sin in the church demands separation, not toleration. Now, we we talk about this idea of separation and we'll, we'll flesh that out in just a moment. That doesn't mean that as soon as we know of a sin in someone's life, we cut them off. That's not what we're talking about here. But we're talking about the characteristics of sin in the lives of believers in churches and let's just before you before you uh try to string me up by my neck or something let's just get through the whole point the solution to infection when your child has an illness what's the solution do you allow the infection to remain without remedy allow that child to interact with others no you don't do that you take care of the infection You don't bring the kid to church. You don't allow that kid to shake everyone's hands. You take care of the infection. You identify it and you pursue a remedy. Sin in the church is an infection. It is contagious. It spreads like wildfire. And the solution is not to tolerate sin in the church. It is to separate, actively remove that sin from the church. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The command is to purge. To purge. Literally that word means in the Greek to cleanse thoroughly. It's used only one other time in the entire New Testament. And that's in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 19-21. through 21. Let me read to you those verses. Paul says, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. If you purge yourself from iniquity, then you will be a vessel of honor that is fit, is meet to be used by the Master. Do we want to be a church that is used by God? Do you want to be a Father that can be used by God to raise your children and to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you desire to be a a discipler that can be used by God to see others in this body and, and or in the community to grow in your in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and understanding. Second Timothy tells us that a man must first purge himself from iniquity. Separation in our lives from sin. Sin is infectious. It will not, you can't bottle it up and say this is just an element of my life that I'm going to keep hidden and it's not going to affect anything else in my life. It doesn't work that way. Sin is leaven. It permeates your life and it will affect. It will affect your decisions. It will affect your demeanor. It will affect the ability of the Holy Spirit to work through you. It will affect the ability of, of you to discern the leading of the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit of God. Sin in your life is an infection. And it must be purged. But you know, it must be purged from a church as well. And that's what's being spoken of here. Here was a man who knew he was doing wrong. We speak of church discipline. And as we speak of church discipline, we recognize that when a person is an open sin in the church, there are steps to go through. Jesus Christ mandates Himself that a man would go to this brother and inform him of the wrong. And then a group would go to him and inform him. And then if he refuses to repent, he would be brought before the assembly. And then if he refuses to repent of that, then he would be sent out of the church. He would be seen as a publican, as one who is an unbeliever. Not that he loses his salvation, but that he is regarded as one who is unrepentant and unwilling to conform himself to God. However, in the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see a man who already knew he was doing wrong there was no question. The church knew it, he knew it. There was no need for church discipline. He was, an, he was already an unrepentant man. And Paul says, Purge this man. Get him out of the church not forever, but until such time as he repents. And that's what we see in Galatians chapter six, verse one. Will you turn there with me? Keep your thumb in 1 Corinthians five. We'll be right back in 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 just a moment. In Galatians chapter 6. Paul says this, brethren: If any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. What Paul is saying in Galatians chapter six, verse one and two, is the object of separation, the object of discipline is not to completely reject a person forever, but it is to chasten that person back to Christ, to get them to see the seriousness of their sin, to take it seriously, to get it out of their lives, and then to move on. That's the object of separation in a church discipline context, is not complete anathema but rather to bring that person to a place of restoration. So in your personal life, when you see sin, you know it will taint. You pinpoint it. You purge it. In a local church body, a person is openly in sin. We need to pinpoint it. We need to purge it. But you know in the church at large, we also need to pinpoint sin. And we need to purge sin from the church at large as well. I say that for this reason. The church today is infected. Seriously infected. And the response of the church has not been one of separation. It has been one of toleration. All of the excuses that I've already mentioned today are being used in the church today to justify sin among believers. And in doing so, we're not becoming more Christ-like we are not patiently helping those in error become more Christ-like. We are simply allowing the infection to spread in our church. Let me ask you. As you look at the nation as it stands right now, the United States of America, you see where we are and where we were 60 years ago. Things have changed a little bit, haven't they? How did it happen? Does error enter into a nation or into a culture by bulldozing its way through? It doesn't, does it? Error enters in through baby steps. Error enters in just a little bit at a time. A nation is heading in a proper direction. It doesn't just one day take a giant leap into wickedness. It takes a little step. And then another little step. And then another little step. And another little step. Until one day they're so far from where they began, you can't even see it anymore. And then as they keep taking steps, there's one day where they are so far away from it that somebody can say, we're just going to change everything and the whole nation goes along with it because they have no foundation. There's no understanding anymore of where they came from. Baby steps. Wickedness. Sin. Error. Apostasy. Come through the baby steps of tolerance. That's why this nation is in the mess it's in today. 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't see a nation being willing to give up so many rights for the security that the nation is giving up today. That many years ago, you wouldn't have seen the economic situation we're in today, being willing to borrow so much money without having anything to back it up. This time in our nation is the culmination of a great number of tolerant baby steps that we've taken over the course of the last hundred years. So let me ask you, as you think about what we see very clearly in the nation today, now think about the church at large. Think about the American church. Why do we find ourselves where we are today in the Western church? Two-thirds of young people leaving the church after they get out of the home. The teaching, great apostasy being found today in many, many popular teachers. How could so many people in the church think that the sin of homosexuality is an innocent lifestyle? How, many, how come so many people in the church can say abortion is a woman's right to choose? How can so many people in the church see women pastors when the scriptures say that they are absolutely forbidden to be pastors see women pastors leading congregations. How could that have happened? Where did that come from? Well, I can tell you it didn't happen overnight. Baby steps. Baby steps. An infection begins in the church. And you can trace it in history. Do a little historical study, you can trace it toleration instead of separation. And as the church became more tolerant, things began to change. Churches stand upon the Word of God. The Word of God is inspired. It is inerrant. It is preserved. There is, we can trust it for faith and for practice. Therefore, thus saith the Lord is truth. And then one day a church says, but we're not reaching the culture that way. So let's just soften the doctrine a little bit in order to win the culture a little bit. And the doctrine was still good. And the culture was coming in and that's great. But then culture now doesn't want just a little softening of doctrine. They need more. And as culture drifts far and farther away from God, the church drifts farther and farther away from God too in order to win the culture. And the next thing you know, these baby steps have taken the church to a place where it's not even church anymore. Where they're afraid to speak the Word of God because they're afraid to offend. It didn't happen overnight. Baby Steps, leaven entered the lump. And if the leaven isn't purged out, then it's going to infect the entire lump. It must be purged. You say, Pastor, it's not all that bad. Well, let me encourage you to do a study on the Western church. Do a study. Trace the church for the last couple hundred years. See where we've come. See how we got there. You'll find that indeed Satan is shrewd. Satan has long-term goals. He has been very active among God's people and among culture, and he is very effective and efficient. The solution to to infection, you have to separate the infected from the healthy. You have to cut it out. You have to quarantine it. Something that is healthy cannot be around something that is infected and expect not to get infected himself. In ancient Jewish culture the leper colony was separated from the city. If a person had leprosy, he was sent to that colony to live the rest of his life and he may never again come into human contact with someone who is clean, who is not leprous. Why? Because if he came into contact with someone who was clean, most likely that clean person would become leprous as well. Because infection spreads. It must be cut out. It must be separated from. It must be removed. coexistence with sin will only bring about more sin and in epidemic proportions. And this is the church today. Sin is an epidemic and we can't even see it because we got to where we are by baby steps. I remind you of that sink. Maybe we say, well, pastor, I know that that church is doing wrong or that church culture as a whole is doing wrong, but... Maybe I can go in and change it. Maybe if I'm in there as a light in that darkness, I can change it. That's like pouring clean water into a dirty sink and expecting that that water is going to become clean. It doesn't work that way. When the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. If you try to be a missionary in a church, you will be tainted. That's the doctrine of separation. And that's why this church is here. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm not saying that a man can't keep himself pure, but there will be attained. And what the Scriptures tell us is that we need to purge the leaven out of the church. You say, Pastor, I would never justify what some of these liberal churches are justifying today. I would never justify fill-in-the-blank. Let's go back to the women preacher example for just a moment. It's the early 1900s. Men have gone off to war. The women fill in in industry. Women suffrage, right to vote, these sorts of things, big ticket items at the time. As the men come back, the women have recognized that they enjoy the workforce, these sorts of things. There began to be, through radical feminism, a blurring of distinctions between the man's role and the woman's role in society. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's no place for a woman to work at all in society. But I do believe the Bible teaches very clearly that a woman's place, particularly in the family, is as a helpmeet in the home. And so we look at what happened in society and we begin to see this situation where women are asserting their rights and it gets bigger and it gets greater and it, gets, and it becomes more and more and more of an issue to where women are equal with men, to where societal roles are just man's means by which to keep women under control. And see, the church rejected this for years. It was in society, but it wasn't in the church. And then there came a generation that said, well, you know what? You're right. This typical male-female role thing, that needs to be softened. And the church began to soften that. However, women, according to the Word of God, should not be preachers. We draw a line there. They shouldn't be preachers. They shouldn't have that that leadership role in the church. However, they can do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, because after all, That's that's fine. Well, that's good for that generation. They haven't stepped over into sin. But then the next generation grows up and this is where the taint begins to happen. You see, because that next generation looks at the former generation and says, well, the Bible shows these roles in society. And your generation said, even though these roles are here, well, we're just going to kind of blur over that a little bit and women can now do this, 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 and this, and this and we're okay with that well, why can't we just push that a little bit further? As culture moves further, let's just push that a little further. And now the church says, well, it's okay for women to be pastors because, after all, there's, there's no difference there, right? And they start to gloss over more and more and more of Scripture and its baby steps of toleration in the church. And so you have women pastors. And the same thing is happening in this generation with homosexuality. Well, the Bible says, suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over a man. But we, we said that that doesn't apply last generation. So why should it matter if a homosexual wants to be a pastor now? We can gloss over that part of Scripture too. If we glossed over the, le- the other part, which was glossed over because the generation before glossed over the other part. Leaven. Baby steps. You let one thing go, then the next thing go, then the next thing go, then the next thing you go, and the next thing you know. It's just a big bucket of dirty water. There's no distinction anymore. The need for separation. Separation is not just a preference. It's a necessity. Verse 8 says, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul reminds us here that Christ is our Passover. He is the Passover lamb slain for us. In like manner, Paul says, we ought to live lives that are in alignment with the expectations of the Passover lamb. Lives that are unleavened. As individuals, as a local church, as the church at large, we ought to be unleavened, free from sin. Sin. Paul says that we live this Christian life free from this leaven of malice, that is depravity, and wickedness, that is evil or sin. Free from depravity, free from sin. And instead, notice what he says to put in its place. Rather the unleavened bread of sincerity, that's purity or clarity, and truth. So we get rid of the depravity and we get rid of the sin and we put instead clarity, sincerity, and Truth. Replace that which your heart tells you to do with that which the Word of God tells you to do. Replace that which society tells you to do with that which the Word of God tells you to do. Uphold the Word of God. Hold high the Word of God. Maintain the Word of God. Make the Word of God preeminent and live by it. Purge out the leaven. Live by the Word. The truth. Sincerity and truth. As we close today, let me ask you a few questions. Let's start with our individual lives. Are you separated from the world? What do you have in your life, in your family, that is clearly leaven? What is the Holy Spirit pricking your heart on right now that leaven in your life. That thing that, you know the Word of God would speak against it, you know God would not be happy with it, you know that you ought not have it in your life, but it's there. And as you think of that sin, don't just think of it as sin, think of it as leaven. What is that leaven going to do to your life? To your life? family's life, to your church's lives. Parents, you have to draw lines. But some things that are in your family may be violating the Word of God. There's leaven in your family. Get it out. Fathers, is there something in your life That is leaven, husband, wife, mother. Get it out. See, if we don't get it out, those baby steps are going to begin to form. Our children, other church members, will begin to see the hypocrisy and the double standard in our lives. Dad says we need to obey the Bible, but he does this because apparently that part of the Bible is not important enough to obey. Our children know we're human. I'm not saying we need to be perfect. But when there's clear hypocrisy, what if your children grow up and they say, my parents saw fit to ignore this part of Scripture, so why can't I ignore that part of Scripture? And those baby steps are going to continue from generation to generation till you look some generations down the road and you can't even discern your family's spiritual integrity. Church. Separation is imperative for a church. This past... Wednesday night was the ecumenical service here in Buffalo for the surrounding churches for Thanksgiving worship. You'll notice I didn't announce that from the pulpit. We didn't announce that from the pulpit because we as a church are not going to be a part of ecumenical worship. And we're not a part of ecumenical worship because there are many churches in the city who are not standing firm on the Word of God who are not doing what is right according to the Word of God. And the Scriptures tell us that we should not be mixing with them. It doesn't mean we can't invite them over to dinner personally. It doesn't mean that we can't speak with them. But we should not be engaging in corporate worship with them because when the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. Church, we need to be separate. We need to keep that dividing line. We need to keep ourselves pure so that we can keep our families pure, so that we can help this community become more pure. And it's not going to happen by mixing with the dirty. The American church as a whole is living a lie which it cannot sustain. The modern televangelists, the big box preachers, and the major megachurches, a large majority of them are preaching a message that's like a bubble. It's a message of health and wealth and happiness and it's going to burst at some point. And if we follow in the footsteps, we will be consumed in that failure. But if we retain our allegiance to the Word of God, then come May, we will find favor with God. Through the promises of His Word. May God help us as individuals, as families, as a local church, as a part of the church at large, to be Christians separated from the world and unto God. Next week we're going to talk about a limit to that separation. I encourage you to come back. If you can't come back, my sermons are on LegacyBaptistChurch.net. I encourage you to listen because there's going to be the other side of the coin in verses um, 9 through 13 that you need to hear about. So be sure to come back next week as we continue to talk about separation. Not just as we talked about this week, the necessity of separation. Next week, the limits of that separation. Let's close in a word of prayer.